Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host Jack Perks and today I've got a very special guest on. Now many of you will be familiar with his work but maybe not realised it and that is of course Hugh Miles who is a very well respected wildlife cameraman having worked on dozens of series, some of the big Attenborough series like Life on Earth, Trials of Life, he's won a slew of awards, BAFTAs, you name it, he's an absolutely incredible man in that regards and the anglers among you will be well aware that he is also the brainchild and cameraman for A Passion for Angling which is largely considered to be the best angling series ever made and even if you're not an angler I would highly encourage you to watch it just for the mouth-watering cinematography that that series has to offer and then later on he also made Catching the Impossible which is where I first heard of Hugh because of the underwater filmmaking that he did on that, and some fantastic shots in there, and it was really an inspiration to me on that. So to meet Hugh, I had to go down to Dorset in September, so I should just add, this was before lockdown, we were allowed to go into households, and we sat in his amazing uh, office, which is just full of angling memorabilia and books and wildlife images and whatnot, and we talked about both his career as a wildlife cameraman, some of the amazing encounters and the lengths that he would go through to get these uh, shots. But of course, we inevitably end up talking a little bit about angling and some of the fish and even a few readers questions or listeners questions. You don't read a podcast, do you? But I did uh, get some questions from some of you guys and put them to Hugh. And I should add, this month is going to be all angling podcasts or angling slight of related podcasts in slew of Britain's Hidden Fishes, which is the biggest project that I've ever worked on. And the idea is to produce a one-hour film on marine and freshwater fish in Britain, because it's never been done before. No one's ever made a film solely dedicated to the natural history of British fish. We have coral reefs. We have amazingly vibrant rivers that do have some incredible behaviours and stories, and that's what I'm trying to uh, tell through crowdfunding. So I won't do too much of a salesman's pitch, but if you're interested, there is a link below in the description. But anyway, let's get chatting to Hugh, and let's find out what he's got to say in this fantastic interview. I've really been looking forward to this, Hugh, for a while, because we've, we've known each other for a few years now, but this is only the second time I've come to, to Miles Manor. <laughs> but it is, it's an incredible... We're sat in Hugh's office right now. It's just a treasure trove of, of books, angling memorabilia, uh, all sorts, and, and Hugh's garden is a, a nature reserve on its own. It's a phenomenal place. So thanks for coming on, I should say, first. Oh, pleasure. Yeah, no, it's a treat because you've done so well in raising the profile of freshwater fish and they so badly need their profile raising in terms of conservation and the, the Naturist Trust, for instance, the fish just hardly ever get a mention and they certainly don't get identified, whereas the nearest blade of grass, if it's been eaten by the wrong thing, oh, they have to change the reserve and do all the habitat management in order to raise this particular piece of grass. <laughs> it's bizarre, yeah, fish are just fish, and so it's appalling. It's a plight we, we both fight for, isn't it? And of course, you're, well, like myself, you're a keen bird watcher, you're a keen naturalist, mm. but we also share this love for fish. So what came first for you? Was it angling or was it more the wildlife watching? Oh, wildlife, certainly. At first, um, my granddad gave me a little fishing rod, an old fly rod with a brass reel, um, and that encouraged me to to start being interested in fishing but I was already interested in wildlife uh, I grew up in the fens and um, that's absolutely magical I, I just 
loved it and I was very lucky to be away at school for 10 years singing in the cathedral choir there and as soon as I had a chance I'd escape into the fens uh, bird watching so we used to survey all the owl nests that we could find around the area there were loads and loads of pollard willows in those days and uh, of course nests sometimes one pollard willow would yield a jackdaw a stock dove and a barn owl all in the same tree and yeah. different bits of the pollards uh, so it was a wonderful place to grow up so fen that's big rud country isn't it the fens i oh, yeah i love <laughs> love me rud and me roach and rud are the, the 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 fish that i particularly love but um yeah rud fishing i took to going back there because i used to fish for them uh, in childhood and cycle over to burwell load for instance and catch some lovely rud but never as big as i've been catching recently um I haven't been for a couple of years, but I did for four or five years. I'd take a week's holiday and stick my little boat in the back of the van, camper van, and set it out on the river and um, on the Burwell load and potter up and down and find um, big rud. And I had lots of two-pounders, but in the end, I, I got the ultimate fish, which I'd always wanted. It was a three-pound rud, but it went three-pound, nine ounces. So, wow, a, I was stoked. That's a beast. Yeah. Absolute beast, isn't it? Yeah. There seems to be a bit of a disconnect sometimes, I suppose, between the birdwatching community, the angling community. Do you think that's a fair statement, or do you think it's just a different points of view on certain things with that? I, I guess people are very focused on their fishing, and it's the be-all and end-all, and they don't actually take the overall experience as a whole. And um, you know, they're busy watching the quiver tip or the swing tip or their float or whatever so they're not really as interested as you'd think they ought to be because they'd get so much more enjoyment from their fishing if they actually took an interest in in the wildlife um, it's always been part and parcel of the experience I'm not fussed sometimes if I don't catch no uh, as long as I see for instance last week I was um uh, mullet fishing in the harbour and then needless to say of course I wasn't catching any mullet but I did see an osprey fishing uh, a peregrine hunting the duck um, a couple of buzzard and a sparrowhawk so that was a great day I think that's one of the things I like about if I go fly fishing because it's more feeling you can kind of take your eyes off the rod for a second and breathe it yeah, all yeah, in you know or, yeah. or even dare I say carp fishing because the the rods are out and you can just absorb the, I don't do a lot of carp fishing, but if I do do it, you can absorb Good the scenery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I thought I, I saw that trapping that is it's horrible chucking it out there and going to sleep on, on too, drinking too many beers and then just wind it in. I, I saw the look it's in your eyes, you. I thought it's not fishing. Out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, every every man to his own, and yeah, of course it it drives the industry these days carp fishing massively. Uh, yeah, and it, I I think it's appalling actually that. They've been a, a carp angling generally as a as a commercial enterprise, have been allowed to destroy so many lakes, in in the interests of just having carp and everything else is a nuisance fish, and you know they should need a license to do what they've been uh, doing. Yeah. There should be a law against uh, destroying ecosystems of whole lakes yeah. in order to provide lots of mud suckers. With it's one thing it's never really talked about with these commercial fisheries but i liken it to kind of battery farm chickens like they're they're stocked to the brim these you know these muddy pools these clay pits mm. full of pr predominantly carp isn't it and if you yeah. if the water was clear and you could see it'd just be black with all these fish just swimming around and half of them have got their rips lipped out it's yeah, it's yeah. quite saddening really uh 
the summer then, as opposed to you know beautiful estate lake or or something yeah. like that. Yeah, well, so of course, some many people can't afford to go to estate lakes or no. don't have access, and and at least commercial fisheries do provide lots of fishing, and people really enjoy bagging up. Um, yeah, they've got with, with um, pasties as they're called. Um, yes, not, yeah. it's not for me. The wilder, the better. And um, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And somewhere like. Christchurch Harbour, which I love mullet fishing for, you've got a vast open space, one of the wildest bits of Dorset, and um, the chances of you catching something are pretty slim, <laughs> but it, it is just a wonderful wild open space, and the, the wilder fishing is, that's why I love river fishing, you're not quite sure where the fish are going to be, or whether there are even any there. But I suppose that makes it all the more enjoyable when you do get that mullet, or that two pound roach, or whatever oh, it you know, yeah. it's... Reward, Two pound it? roach. What's that? <laughs> I, seen, <laughs> I don't know. I've only I haven't seen one for a while. No, that is a rare. That's thing. that's my ultimate goal. Always is two pound roach. Yeah, it's for a lot of. I'm gonna we're gonna I'm gonna mention roach a little bit later on because I know you've got a soft spot for them. But as well as the fishing that many people will know you for, you've worked on many landmark nature series like Life on Earth, Natural World, Private Life of Plants. Is there a moment that you're that you're most proud of? Ooh, proud of? No, I always feel. Hmm. I could have done that a bit better, but um, I guess my my favourite experience was um, in southern Chile in the Andes Mountains. I was there to make a film about mountain lions, pumas, and um, at first there, it was in the early days um, before every man and his dogs goes there to film pumas, but it was thought to be impossible um, to the extent where a scientist in North America who goes by the wonderful name of Morris Hornocker, <laughs> and he's the ultimate authority on mountain lions in North America. And he'd only ever, he'd been studying them for eight years and he'd only ever seen them four times. So um, when he saw the film I'd made, he said if that wasn't National Geographic, I'd say it was a put-up job. Really? So that, that was uh, quite a compliment, but... Um, how I managed to achieve it was um, initially because of the persecution of the mountain lions by the gauchos, uh, they just used to run away because they used to be persecuted and they'd yeah. be shot on sight. If they saw a human, the chances are unless they ran bloody fast, they'd be dead. And this was no good at all. The first 10 days I saw one puma and that just froze and then ran off. I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to make this film. So in the end, I... I became slightly familiar with one young female. She became inquisitive about me because I would be relentlessly trying to see her every day. And slowly but surely, she sort of thought, who is this guy? Like in the, the great film, Butch Cassidy, who is this guy? You know that line? Well, that's how the cat thought about me. And it would uh, I'd, I'd walk away from where I'd been sat and she would come up and sniff the spot and then I'd leave bits of equipment, a rucksack or something. So slowly but surely she got used to me. And um, in the end, um, after about four months, I, she would go to sleep by me and I could walk along in the mountains with her. You weren't, weren't frightened? You were me. completely confident with her? Yeah, there was a sort of a trust thing. Uh, certainly, yeah, I'd film her at night and wander about. I was aware at times that I was going past places that I knew the pumas used for um, for ambush, yeah. ambushing the Wanaco, which is the uh, the large camelot of South America, and that was their main prey. And um, that's what the um, pumas would be hunting. 
and so sometimes the hair would stand on there because yeah, I than knew I was vulnerable <laughs> and um, in fact six weeks after I'd um, I'd finished uh, the filming uh, fisherman down by the lake where I'd been filming was killed by a mountain lion wow, well, a puma same cat of course um, and I think I, I wouldn't have been wandering around at night and especially on one occasion I'd been filming her on a kill and the light went because the cloud came over the moon so I couldn't use my image intensifier anymore so I thought I'll curl up because I want to stay with her as long as I can I'll just curl up and add a little kip in the in the bush on the, on the ground in the heather obviously fell asleep and the next thing I knew I felt this slight crunch in the gravel by me and there she was standing over me sniffing me <laughs> oh god <laughs> And that gave me a hell of a turn. I never, ever lay down on the ground after that in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and if I'd known that the fisherman had been, I wouldn't have been there at all. Oh, God. So, um, But that was the most amazing experience, to be trusted by a, a wild yeah. cat like that and be, be, be even greeted by one day I'd come home for Christmas to see the family and gone back there. And so I hadn't been there with her for about three weeks. And she came out of the cave and walked up towards me and actually meowed at me. Went, oh. was a, it, it struck me as a greeting. I mean, it nearly yeah. brings me to tears, just the thought that she she would respond to my presence like that. She knew so you that well. It was a bit of magic. Yeah, yeah. absolute magic. So. That's why we do this, I suppose, isn't it? At what point would you would you give up or is there no giving up? Because like, you think that some of these camera operators, well, like yourself, spend months... Maybe, maybe even years potentially. Is there a point when you're like, look, this ain't going to happen, or is it a case of you need to make it happen? Uh, you have, you have to make it happen. Yeah. But there was one occasion when I thought I'm not going to be able to deliver this film, and, and National Geographic and the BBC had, had put substantial amount of money into doing it. It took me two and a half years to finish the film. That was several expeditions, two hundred and fifty days I spent out in the bush. Not just the travelling, but just being out there. And one stage, in the early stages, when all the cats were very nervous and I was in the process of trying to uh, befriend Penny, as I called her, Penny the Puma, um, she, um, she was just beginning to trust me a bit. And then uh, some gauchos had come into the park with guns and we found blood in three caves so they'd shot three and then we found the ropes and some blood and uh, bullet cases and stuff and I didn't see Penny for ten days or something and I thought we're finished and yeah. Donny, my assistant Argentinian gaucho, lovely man we just sat on the side of the hill thought we're, we're finished, we're done and then we just kept looking, looking, looking but in the end Penny turned up oh, so we were still, he was so we were in business Oh God! Well, you know, two two years of my life yeah. was depending yeah. on her being alive because she was the one I could actually film. Yeah, hell of a lot of pressure as well, I suppose. Or maybe yeah, not. I suppose always. Yeah, you you you've got to deliver. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't eat. Yeah. <laughs> you know that. Yeah, yeah. That's if why I'm so skinny here. <laughs> yeah. If you don't get any film, you don't get to eat. It's as simple as that. So, yeah, you have to keep persevering. And you've worked on, on quite a few firsts, haven't you? So I think I'm right in saying, is it Shetland Otters? You were the first one to, to work with those in terms of filming? Yes, I believe the first to make um, other people who got bits of film. Yeah. 
especially in uh, Mull, I think. Uh, there was a couple there who filmed them a bit. But it was the first complete um, otter film made, um, and it was for BBC One, the Wildlife on One Attenborough series. Yes. Yeah. And it, extraordinary. It, it was amazing because it, it got an audience of 17.3 million, I think. You, I don't think you get that for the Queen's wedding now, do you? No, 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 no. Um, but it was in the good old days when there were hardly any television channels. But uh, So incredibly popular animal. And then I, I thought I could do better than that, so I made a complete um, one-hour film, The World About Us, uh, on the otters, the same otter. And there again I'd use this technique of, of, of trying to habituate one one otter and she'd swim up to me and I I never quite I was crouched down in the edge of the sea with her and she swam up and I tried to touch her on the head but she just sank she didn't ever let me touch no, her no but um, sadly but I, I'd love to have done but and she was brilliant so she was the one I followed around and they got so used to me the cubs came and they were all running around the tripod between me legs and she was <laughs> just sat there and she caught her sea scorpion which they absolutely adore and she wasn't going to share that with the cubs. So she swam off out into the uh, ocean about 100 yards or something, leaving the cubs with me. And then suddenly a big squall came up, a sleet and the wind, and the cubs went off looking for mum, and they got swept out to sea and uh, were lost. Oh, God. And I spent lots of time with Bobby Tullock, who used to be the RSPB, the chief of Shetland Wildlife, basically. Um, we went searching for him with a boat and stuff and we never did find those cubs so so I was back to square one so I had to carry on yeah again waiting for it to produce another lot of cubs yeah you definitely get emotionally invested with the, the subjects oh yes I, I I got the idea of, of actually this this system of trying to select out one animal and um, tame them enough so I could could film them intimately uh, from a wonderful book you're probably familiar with called The Peregrine by J.A. Baker I know I've never read it but I know of it oh you it's absolutely fabulous read and that was based on a guy who actually spent time in Essex and he wanted to get to know this peregrine and he wore the same clothes every day and walked in the same way and slowly but surely habituated her and at the end of the book he's standing there in a field with her with a kill and that's the sort of combination of the story and it's the whole process of of, of her getting used to him and he getting used to her habits and so I thought I think that will work for wildlife filmmaking mm. so uh, I did that with the Shetland Otter and then the Puma came oh, 10 years later and I used the same technique yeah. I've done so in Africa with lions and things I pick out one lion I had one called uh, I called her Looney because she was a pathological killer <laughs> she, she had a pregnant sister and there were just the three of them. Uh, but anyway, there was Looney and the sister. And she felt, if she saw a wild, wildebeest, she had to go and kill it for <laughs> her sister. And uh, so it got loads of hunting. And it was, it was that's again, another wildlife on one for Attenborough. And that went down a storm as well. But it only took 19 days. I got six kills in 19 days. Because yeah. Looney, the pathological killer, <laughs> did it for me. <laughs> and a psychopathic lion that just yeah. got... And because it was wildlife on one, I thought, if people would be sensitive, I mean, people don't like animals being killed. So I thought, I'll edit it in such a way that it doesn't show any blood. So once she dropped 
the animal end of story you didn't have to see a chomping on it yeah that was a while off on one on lines with not a drop of blood in it so yeah. i was pleased with that well when you think about it, you know why they do i suppose but yeah nearly nearly always they they cut just before you get all the because there must be moments when you're filming and there's there's guts flying everywhere oh. and you know it's like a, a bloodbath but yeah. you know you don't want to necessarily keep rolling i don't know maybe you do film it but <laughs> no well it depends what's going to happen I, I did one about wild dogs are hunting dogs in east africa absolutely wonderful animals i didn't think i'd like them as much as cats i love cats because they're so individualistic but uh, dogs of course are all busy amongst themselves being a pack animal yeah and so you're not really relevant to their lives whereas with a cat you are and wild dogs of course they drag the wildebeest down and then rip them apart and, yeah. uh, but you sort of have to keep rolling because sooner rather than later usually the hyenas are going to come and try and kill it and then there's a battle or worse still there's a big lion that comes which i had have ha happening and a, a big male lion came in and stole the kill from them and then of course the dogs are all going mad trying to get the lion off it and one i called who was this sub-adult um the beta male who led all the hunts I call him Beta the Lion Biter because he'd go up and pull the lion's tail <laughs> and bite the lion to try and get him off the kill. So he was an absolute had, star animal. So. Had some balls on that. Yeah, that dog. Beta the Lion Lion Biter. Yeah, he was my star. Going back to otters, I hope you don't mind me sharing this story that you told me before. But you you went all the way to Shetland to film and and then you had them turn up in your garden, and there was one that turned up in the night, I believe, when you had some fish in your pond. And you had a way of scaring it off, an unusual way of scaring it off. Can you remember what I'm referring to? No, I don't actually no. remember what, because okay. it's I'll happened so often since. <laughs> okay, I'll uh, give you a clue. You were stark bollock naked and you were chasing oh, the yeah. Oh dear, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully I didn't frighten it <laughs> because of what it saw. No, <laughs> it's never been back but, since. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Now I get frequent visits now, and I know it's an issue with fisheries. And um, you know, if you if you spend a lot of money transforming a lake into a carp fishery, and then of course otters love carps and yeah. chomp them. You know, what do you do? Well, you, then you have to fence it off, and that's not very good either because it's a tricky situation. It is. It's one that we could probably spend all day delving into, but I won't do yeah, <laughs> today. No. Which will probably be relieved. No. But you've you mentioned you've been in some some hairy situations and I think you were saying uh, polar bears were tricky in the Arctic you were in some situations with those that were a little bit hair raising yeah we um, I, I did a series um, of three films called Kingdom of the Ice Bear in the 80s the Arctic hadn't ever really been covered much by television at that stage so I came up with this idea took it to the BBC Mike Salisbury uh, jointly produced it with me. Uh, we went off, we did 17 expeditions into the Arctic and um, even got, I got awarded a, a medal by the Royal Geographic <laughs> Society for exploration, would you believe? So as late as and the 80s, they still hadn't explored it all then? Uh, no, we were going to places that no one had ever been. It was an extraordinary experience and the series went down really well. Uh, to the extent we got nominated for six British Academy Awards, which is extraordinary. We didn't win any of them. In fact, by the fifth one, Mike and I went off to the bar to have a drink because we thought this is a waste of space. Probably but, a clever yeah, thing to yeah. do. Um, <laughs> but we had, yeah, we had some um, some dodgy moments. Um, one happened, uh, the bear was on a, on a kill 
and sauce and I opened a, a flask of soup and it was oxtail soup so it was a bit like the advert actually because the, the bear raised its nose and got a scent for this oxtail soup so it started walking towards us thinking oh this smells really nice I think we'll have some of this and in the end Ned Kelly who's a producer I said he better and he started loading the rifle I said he's coming closer and closer and I was on a big close up and my heartbeat was going because <laughs> it was getting very close and I said you better fire a shot over its head to warn it off to yeah, frighten yeah, it yeah, off yeah, yeah, and yeah. do you know it didn't even blink it kept coming really I thought oh shit we're in deep deep doo doo now and luckily another bear came to steal its kill so it turned around and went back to it so oh that, God. that was a that's a moment of some anxiety that's not what you want on your gravestone is it killed because <laughs> I had some soup and, <laughs> yeah. a, and a bear ate no, me madness yeah, yeah. yeah. they're big animals polar bears mm. not something you want to get on the yeah uh, well, they stand um, yeah they stand so when they stand up they're sort of 11 feet so they're towering over you and we had another time when um, we were filming in a, a fire tower it was about 40 feet it was very old and rickety and we got hit by a hurricane and uh, we th thought if it blows over, you know, we're dead. But so we had no protection down below. We hadn't made an igloo and put food and water and uh, armaments down below. So we did that in the middle of the storm. And we stood back to back. I, I was doing the collection. Uh, all the camera gear and the food had blown off into the snow. And we stood back to back. And the assistant was behind me with a magnum pistol because there were 40 polar bears all around us oh and God. you never know whether if you cleared something and it was actually a polar bear under the snow as opposed <laughs> to because they'd all been buried oh my goodness so that, that was a horrible moment I, we did and I it wasn't just me as an English wimp but the um, helicopter pilot who spent all his life flying around the Arctic and been working with polar bears I said I hate to be a wimp but did you think we were going to die last night? And he said, yes, I did. <laughs> and, and it carried on blowing all day, but we put this protection in and we had a rope that we could shin down if the tower started blowing out. Yeah. Um, and then in the end it blew out. Um, but that was, uh, that was one of those moments in life when I thought I might die and you get a very wet, cold palms from the fear. It's, it's really weird. Yeah. It happened another time. I was in Bangladesh <laughs> filming filming a man-eating tiger, which I'd been sent out there by the BBC. And I said to the BBC, well, I've got a wife and children. I said, you'll have to take out life insurance for me. And they said yes. And I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't be going because the BBC never agreed to pay for anything. Anyway, I got out there and uh, there was great tension. And um, I had to film these tigers. And um, I said, oh, what, what's up you know what's what's happening and they said oh well six days ago one of the fishermen was killed by this man-eater wow um, and uh, dragged off his uh, he was mending the nets and dragged off and had his stomach ripped out dead they said but there's only one I said I only need one yeah, yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get on the wrong side uh, of that it was incredibly tense and um, one day I was filming I was in a little hide filming the deer and and hoping the tiger would come out and there was all these alarm you know when there's a predator around you hear the alarm calls and then it went incredibly silent the tension I could just hear my heartbeat going and the tiger was just outside the little hide and I just thought was it gonna attack or not and anyway it went away 
but that again was another stage when I thought I might die here. <laughs> it's oh, not very nice. No, no. I see. I don't. I don't really get that with minnows when I'm in, a, <laughs> when I'm in the river. Not yeah. yet. Yeah. Speaking of minnows, most anglers uh, will obviously know you as the as if they say you're the creator of passion for angling. What would you say your your role of that is? You're you're the you're the brainchild of it, aren't you? That's fair. To yeah, say. I, yeah. It was an obviously team effort. And, uh, yeah, very much with Bob and Chris. But yeah, I came up with the idea originally to make one half-hour film about. Red Bar, and we managed to get the um, permission to be there for the beginning of the season. Anyway, we caught four 20 pound carp, so that wasn't possible to get that in half an hour. And uh, I thought, well, it's gone so well in 10 days. We had the same weather every day, the carp did the same thing. We caught lots, even I caught a Red Bar carp, which is not being a carp angler, was a happy moment. So I said to them, oh, well, you know, we'll need to make this an hour. And um, we can't sell just one one-hour film, so how about we make six one-hours? And they foolishly agreed and <laughs> regretted doing it ever since. Uh, so four and a half years later, we had the series finished. But um, yeah, it was it was very much my baby. We we worked out what we'd have in each film and so on, and I, I obviously filmed it and produced it. So why do you think it resonates so well? Because it's got it's got a cherished place among British anglers. Everyone kind of regards it as the pinnacle of of angling TVs. Do you think there is a reason it, it just sort of homed in with so many so many British anglers? I think the the friendship between Bob and Chris and the way I I I was keen to have a modern angler and and a traditionalist. Of course, Chris is the ultimate traditional angler would work well because then we could bring modern techniques and, and tackle and tactics and so on into the story and they would contrast each other and compete with each other sort of indirectly. And then it's, it's, it's difficult not to make something beautiful in the English countryside if you include the scenery and the wildlife and the atmosphere. And I was um, absolutely determined we, we'd do the English countryside justice and the Scottish. We went to Scotland. So I'd always get them up really early in the morning. As you know, being a photographer, you get the best light at dawn or dusk. And so we fished incredibly long hours and, um, and they did wonderfully well. They worked really hard at it. They got fed up with being got up at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but by their hard work and my relentless drive to um, do it as well as we possibly could, and the choice of the locations, I, I think maybe that was part of its reason for success. One of the, the iconic moments in that series is the, the haul of roach that, uh, that Chris and Bob get. Do you think that there is a reason why roach have got this status among British anglers? Because why not say, like you were saying, rudd earlier or, or dace, but why the roach is so prized among, among anglers? Well, firstly, I think because roach are so widespread, they occur in canals, lakes, ponds, rivers, big or small, all over the country, right up into Scotland. The River Tay has a wonderful population. In fact, I tried to catch some once in the River Tay. There were two bounders there, but I right? got one I or two smaller ones. Yeah, huh. yeah, near Perth. Um, so the, the the fact that everybody can catch roach, and uh, there's a tendency, of course. Almost all of us want to catch a bigger roach, and of course the ul the ultimate fish is a, a two pound roach, or a three if you happen to be lucky. Three would be nice, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. I've I've 
I've been lucky enough to catch quite a lot of three pound roach so, and lots of two pounders but they they you never tire of catching roach any any roach is a lovely roach and if it's over a pound then I'm a happy lad and if it's a two pounder then that's another fish of a lifetime as far as I'm concerned so it's not surprising I think that the roach is such a popular fish they are. I mean, especially there's something about specimen fish. I know, obviously, that that anglers like to catch big fish, but say like a big perch is a different animal to you know a, a three inch perch. And I think mm. the same if you if you're lucky enough to see a roach that's over a couple of pounds, they're kind of broad. Uh, I don't know if I'm romanticising it too much, but they're just wise. You look at them and they've lived a life, and I quite like it when you get the ones actually when they have got slight imperfections where they might have a little scar because mm. it tells you a bit more of a story. Like that one's evaded a pike one day or. Uh, or, or a know. cormorant. Oh, <laughs> I was trying to get yeah, through without yeah. saying the c Don't word. Mention the cormorant. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. But yeah, they 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 live a hard life, yeah. definitely. Well, they're an old, they're old and wise, and a, a big big roach generally they're very difficult to catch. Yeah. Um, and um, they might be thirteen or fourteen years old. I caught um, a three ten pound roach la two years ago from a lake admittedly that only weighs half really it's worth half a river roach but uh, as Stuart Wilson says up the LA he says oh it's a lake fisher and he counts half so you'll have to speak to him tomorrow about that but I, I caught that fish and I had the scale a scale came off in the net um, and I didn't photograph it and hold it up or anything else so I kept that scale and sent it to a scientist and he said that's nine and a half years old. So amazing growth rate. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I haven't got around to going back and catching a record yet, but I'm sure there's one swimming in that lake. Yeah, there must be. A magnificent fish. It was absolutely immaculate and never, I don't think it ever been caught, not a mark on it. So yeah. that was a wonderful moment, yeah. I mean, we both work hard to try and try and push fish. Why do you think fish are, are so shunned? You know, so much in UK filmmaking particularly they just tend to stick primarily with birds and mammals and fish often are kind of just left on the back seat. So do you think there's a reason for that? Well, it's clearly that they're difficult to observe, as you and I know, because we've tried to film them underwater and you've succeeded admirably. And I've got a few bits in Catching the Impossible, for instance. I, I managed to film some. In fact, I enjoyed filming the fish underwater more than I did catching them. Yeah, it gets so like that, it, doesn't it? It's very exciting when you get them coming and you get a nice shot of a fish doing what it does with feeding and so on. Um, but I think it, it's the fact that people don't know how to observe fish and so out of sight, out of mind, I think it's probably as simple as that. But they are a, an absolutely invaluable and essential part of every ecosystem, freshwater ecosystem. They shouldn't be ignored in the way they are. And the more you see what's happening to our rivers and abstraction and pollution and uh, lack of care, and even when pollution happens, the Environment Agency don't take them to court. And it, it's heartbreaking what's happening. And only recently the, the figures uh, suggest that not a single river in this country is actually of, of good ecological status anymore. I had Fergal Sharkey on the podcast. Uh, you know, oh, brilliant. And he was yeah. on the other day. And yeah, he was going into great detail and uh, and anger at the Environment yes. Agency yeah. uh, about yeah. all that. But it is it's shocking, isn't it? Really? Oh, the amount of sewage and chemicals that we are willingly dumping in our yeah. rivers. Heartbreaking. I'm being careful not to say retired from filmmaking, but you've. it's fair to say you've, you're kind of spending more time with a rod in your hand now, isn't it? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, I'm I'm hardly doing any filming now. If I do, it's to help out Dorset Wildlife Trust and uh, the Angling Trust, of which I'm a staunch supporter. I think they're doing a wonderful job, and we all we all should be joining the Angling Trust and and supporting them, so we have more influence over things like polluted rivers. So I, I help them out a bit, and the salmon and Salmon and Trout Conservation Organisation I've done films for in the past and would do. And all freebies because it's a way of, for the cliche, of putting something back. So. Yeah. And yeah. I'll continue to do so. I, I write more than anything now and I'm going to write an article for the Dorset Wildlife Trust in this next about our garden and uh, what we're doing for bees and butterflies because they're obviously declining like everything seems to be and we're doing what we can in our little garden to um, actually try and enhance the number of bees and butterflies we had and uh, I'm very happy with how things are going this year we've created a and b we call it a bee and butterfly garden and it's been absolutely buzzing and uh, that's a great joy yeah I mean uh, we can I can just peer out into your garden from where we sat and it is um, it's incredible it's absolutely incredible what you've what you've achieved in this uh in this space hmm. well i'm going to end on a couple of listeners questions before uh before we call it a day so the first one is from uh lindsey mccray who, who i know oh, you yeah. know yeah and good he, old lindsey he was on the podcast and he asked for advice on catching big canal perch find cover first uh, either down the edge or if there's a bush or reeds across uh, the far side it can be right under your feet or um, on the far bank even down the channel fish uh, chop worm and caster and um, maybe a lobworm um, or just casters sometimes but a lobworm you can't beat even a dare I say a live roach yeah <laughs> <laughs> or gudgeons the killer yeah uh, gudgeon they love they only, love gudgeon yeah. and um, so they would certainly work so but tread carefully it's amazing how sensitive fish are yeah. One story, if I may add, is when we were doing passion for angling at Redmar, and I had a scaffold so I could film the guys and film the carp swimming around, and I'd be talking to Chris down below in a normal voice like this, and the carp, and you have several 20-pounders up in the shallows firing around, they'd just melt away. And we found in the end that the only way, uh, they would just hear the voices. It's whether it's the vibration through your body or yeah. whatever and uh, so we started talking in falsetto like this and then the car wouldn't go away but then we went to the pub and asked for a pint of beer and the guy had a very funny look at us <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we can't be too sensitive when we're fishing you need to tread very carefully and I think that to Lindsay would be one of the pieces of advice is to be very very cautious on the bank and Try not to move at all. Yeah. Like, well, like we were saying with those with those uh, roach earlier, the big fish don't get big without knowing what to avoid and yeah. how to keep out of the way. I've got his first. And I've just got R Mumby, but he asks, uh, "What do you think about the spread of Wells catfish in UK river systems?" I don't know how much you know about this, Hugh, but there's there's a few Wells catfish turning up in a in a few rivers now. Uh, yes. I. What do I think about it? I think it's. Um... A very dangerous thing to do if they've got their naturally well fair dues but I know for a fact that one of my favorite tench waters locally and they had a big rud as well it, anglers thought oh this is a good idea because I'd love to catch a big 
so they'd tip them in the lake and it destroyed the tench fishing. The rudd went due to cormorants, um, but probably maybe catfish as well, but the catfish have uh, destroyed a fishery. It's still full of carp, because of course catfish can't get the carp. So yeah. plenty of carp and catfish. Yeah. But none of the other ecosystem that used to be, so it's, it's basically a dead water as far as I'm concerned, unless you want to sit there behind buzzers all night. <laughs> God, God forbid. <laughs> and putting them in rivers is, well, what what harm is that doing to the ecosystem? God only knows, but probably a lot of harm. Yeah, you know. I know uh, on It'd the... be all right, actually, if they started eating otters. I think, yeah, I'm <laughs> or cormorants, better yeah, still. Yeah, train them to eat them. We've had a local on the river, river Stour, just upstream at Blandford. I've seen two photographs people have taken now, two different photographers have photographed otters eating cormorants. Is that uh, right? That's good, yeah. I need to train some up. <laughs> you get, get the one in your garden and get, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. get it on it. I know in the Ebro, where they've got the catfish, there were several endemic barbel species, mm. and they've all more or less just yep. gone now because yep. the cats eat them. I mean, I mean, my local River Trent, I wouldn't say they're common by any stretch of the imagination, but I think if you put your mind to it, you could probably target them. They, they are in certain stretches, so... I've got nothing. I mean, catfish are incredible creatures, and I think yeah. they're great if it's a stocked pond away from a river. But I wouldn't really want to see them in rivers personally. But mm. I, um, I, see. I agree entirely with you. Yeah, um, Will Will Mallet asks your favourite river poem. I suspect this comes from Passion for Angling because you had was it inserts of poems in some of the we episodes. We did, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Chris, so Chris Sanford spoke them absolutely beautifully for the films. <laughs> there were lots of quotes which were were fantastic. There was Ted Hughes's one about tench fishing. There was a wonderful one of, of Richard Walker's about dawn and carp fishing. There was BB one BB's one about life's too short to be a carp angler. <laughs> <laughs> and in those days of course when he lived that was probably true. And so I I, I don't have a favourite but um yeah, watch Passion for Angling, and there's some wonderful quotes there's in there. There's plenty to um, Which, uh, quite a lot of them were chosen by, by Chris Yates, of course, yeah. being our eminent writer, the best in this decade, probably, and last decade as well, our, our fishing writer. He's, he's writing about other subjects now. He did a wonderful book called Night Walks, okay. and it's a stunner. Everybody who loves the countryside should read that book. And he's doing one now about winter. Mind you, he's been writing it for about five years. And he's probably going fishing too often. <laughs> no, he's got into bird watching now. He's he's not fishing much at all. He's big time into birds, Is particularly right? hen harriers and oh. goshawks. He's I was chatting to him yesterday. He's seeing goshawks more and more frequently. Oh, never, I'd love to see a goshawk. Never seen yeah. one in a while. And I'm going to end on this last one, which is from uh, Vince Cater, and he asks, uh, "What are your thoughts?" on current angling programs? I don't watch many at all. I haven't been <laughs> watching Big Carp because I'm, yeah, every, yeah, lots of people love Big Carp, but I'm not into Big Carp fishing unless I'm stalking and freelining in the edge. But the um, the one, the Go Fishing one on BBC Two at the moment is um, really quite pleasant. I find that the uh, Moreland White House, uh, that one. Moreland yeah. White House, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite pleasant. I think I get a bit irritated by the 
I don't think it's careful enough on the fishing front. The, the there's a lack of detail and it wouldn't take them any longer. I know they're on a tight budget and a tight schedule, um, but if they got a few more close-ups of what bait is he in, where has he cast it, it's not difficult. You've done it, I've done it. Uh, just point the camera in the right direction. Probably get off the tripod and get handheld and get in there. Yeah. And they would be much more stimulating because the two guys are good value. You know, it's really good. But the the actual fishing is is almost an excuse for being there, which of course is a cliche for fishing. It's an yeah. excuse for being there. <laughs> it's almost in a way like passion, where it, I suppose passion the, the angling's first, but with the Mortimer and Whitehouse series, it's almost second, isn't it? It's the you know, it's just them. It's a vehicle for them. Yeah. For, for do exactly. you like it? I do like it. What what I like about it is that a lot of my friends who wouldn't watch angling series have watched that and they've got into it. Whereas you know I'll, I'll watch anything with a fish on, but mm. they they quite enjoyed the kind of the friendship aspect of it, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, no, yeah. I, I do like. It. It's a shame there's not more fishing on TV, but I mean it's a shame with yeah. fish in general, isn't it? But yeah. hopefully yeah. that'll that'll change. That was the nice thing with passion for angling. Uh, so many of the audience were non-anglers and. Um, yeah. And they really enjoyed it because of the friendship of Bob and Chris and the way the they presented angling as a whole. Um, in fact, we got one of our, our best ever comment was a postcard. This guy had written in, he said, I don't fish, I don't even like fishing, but I'm hooked. <laughs> Great compliment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I think on that, we'll, we'll call it a day. But look, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's nice to be in the room with someone again. This is only the second one I've done where I've physically actually been able to chat to someone. And it's been an absolute pleasure, Hugh. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Jack. I wish we had longer and we could natter about fishing for hours. <laughs> and wildlife. And particularly the great work you do with the underwater filming. It, it's really admirable. I, I love seeing your work. It's a treat. Thank you. No, no that's high praise. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs> That was Hugh Miles. It was lovely to actually be there with him because my original idea for these podcasts was to go and meet people and we'd maybe go for a walk or something and talk as we're doing it. And uh, COVID had other ideas for that. But I think on the whole it worked, but it was great to, to meet up with him. Hugh is an absolute legend in all senses of the word in wildlife filmmaking and obviously with the films he's done with anglers. I love that story about the mountain lion over you. I mean, you'd crap your pants, wouldn't you, if you had a mountain lion standing over you and how he's habituated animals. And it's interesting to see in more recent films, for example, on Netflix, My Octopus Teacher. Same thing in that. And I think a lot of these filmmakers uh, can get some amazing footage. It obviously takes a hell of a lot of time, but it obviously reaps the rewards when you do do them. And, and the thing that Hugh mentioned about fish being shunned is largely true, which kind of ties into why I'm trying to do this crowdfunding film, Britain's Hidden Fishes, to kind of put fish at the forefront. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast, and next week I'm joined by John Bailey. John is a prolific angling writer. He's appeared in dozens of fishing TV series, including Mr Crabtree Goes Fishing, which was one of the very first television series I ever worked on, and that's how I know John very well. So we're going to be talking about his career, uh, about angling in general, some of the programs he's worked on. He's also, weird enough, we mentioned that White House and Mortimer fishing series. He's the consultant on that series. So he's going to be telling us a little bit about that as well uh, next Tuesday. Well, I hope you've enjoyed it. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>